You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we put our eyes on you. We're so full of gratitude and affection for you. All it takes is a moment of remembering how amazing you are and all the amazing things you've done for us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be the rabbi tonight. You would be our teacher. You would open our eyes to see glorious things from your word. Father, that you would anoint me, that your heart would just pour through this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I mentioned that I had kind of a countercultural word for tonight, <clears throat> and it it started to spawn in my, uh, in my mind when a, a good friend asked if he could speak with me and get some of my time, and he confided in me that he felt a little bit sick of the word revival and some of the connotations that come with revival, and it was almost as if he was confessing to me that he... Or, or that he, maybe he felt like he needed to confess it, like a, like a sin to me. And he, we just got into talking, and um, and I just, I told him um, a revival, a charismatic revival culture can be exhausting because sometimes we focus more on our devotion to God than God's devotion to us. And <laughs> and it's it's. It's important to get th- that right. We can become pretty enamored sometimes with all the things that we do for him instead of focusing on all the amazing things that he's done for us and focusing on his nature, his, his beauty. And um, I think that it is actually the root of Christian exhaustion. I think the root of Christian burnout is this. It's contending for what's already been given. Or getting impressed by our own grand ideas of how we're going to bring heaven down. I have a video that I think will beautifully highlight this. And it's a song from a worshiper named Godfrey Bertel. And I wanted to play it tonight. And again, just I've already forewarned you, tonight's gonna be a little bit countercultural, so just put your awkward seat belts on and get ready for an interesting evening. Can you play that video for us, Luke, and make sure it's good and loud? Settle down now, okay. Shabba short of a breakthrough. <laughs> Your prophetic warnings getting boring. Did a donut ruin your 40 day fast? And you've just realized those extended meetings can't last. Well, don't forget to answer the rest. You've heard the gospel message. 
with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In him, we have the fullness. And stepping into that reality sets us free from fighting for that reality. Just, just realizing these things. See, when we realize that Jesus is already king, we stop the exhausting mental gymnastics of trying to make him king. When we realize that we are seated with Christ, in heavenly places, reconciled and wrapped up into the heart of the Trinity, then we will be delivered of pleading for more of a God of whom we already have all of. We won't beg God to come into the room when he's already here. I believe that real power is in recognizing and appreciating that he's already here. Does that feel good? Does that, you can like take those burdens of like feeling like you're responsible for, for revival and just taking those burdens off your shoulder and realizing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary. One of my favorite verses, whenever I get twisted up into a little bit of religion and thinking that it all depends on me, one of my favorite verses to go to is 1 John 5.3. The commands of God are not burdensome. 
so I, that was a hard verse for me to believe because I had carried so many things and purposes of God with such like fervency that um, I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know how to let go. And, and the, the burden feeling, I, I had to look up what burdensome even meant. And it means taxing, wearying, worrying. And so I want us just to, to close our eyes and, and think of anything in our life that has become insane, insanely burdensome. Anything that is very taxing, wearying, worrying, things that are causing great psychological weight. And then we're going to ask the Lord, Lord, was that something that you asked me to do? Was that a purpose that I was supposed to step into? Or was that a religious spirit masquerading as the Holy Spirit? And Father, for those places where we have stepped into that realm of burdensome tasks, we ask that you would show us the exit. You would deliver us and you would get us out of that place and back into a place of rest with you. Amen. So this, in my opinion, this is what it means to have a high Christology or Christological view. Christology is simply uh, that Christ is the logos. Christ is the logic of God. Christ is the mind of God. Christ is the exact representation of God. So when we dive into who he is, it works its way. Those revelations of who he is work their way into every area of our life, lining up everything properly with his kingship in our life. And that's real rest. So Christ is the logos or logos. He is the expressed mind of God. Jesus is God's mind made up about humanity. Jesus is the irrevocable union of man and God. Jesus is the intersection of creator and creation. Second Corinthians five says that, this is Paul, he's saying, I know we might sound like we're out of our mind, but we're compelled by Christ's love, and we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died in Jesus, is creation. For him, through him, in him, everything is created. So I actually believe that when we repent, repentance isn't realizing that we've been a jerk and trying harder to change our ways. Repentance is realizing that Jesus is kinder than we ever gave him credit for. Repentance, the word is actually metanoia, which means a change of mind in the inner man. So when you see Christ rightly, you change your mind about him, you are, it's like you got infected with a dangerous joy. 
And that, that dangerous joy, peace, and hope begins to work its way through all the synapses and connecting, and you're, it's like your computer starts to get defragged in your brain, and all of your thought processes line up with God is good. So repentance isn't like this thing. Repentance is this aha, and you realize he's really, really good, and it just changes your whole life. Has anyone in here just tried harder not to sin? Yeah, just try harder, guys. I mean, that's what I learned in counseling as a pastor. People come to me with their sin problems, and I ask them, have you tried harder? (laughs) No. The only thing, and I mean the only thing that works is realizing God is kind. This is in Romans 2.4. Don't show contempt for the grace of God. Do you not know that his kindness leads to repentance? When we think repentance is achieved by anything other than discovering how kind God is, we fall into the trap of believing our salvation depends on us instead of the grace of God. And we begin to feast again on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking that if we fill our bellies enough, we will end up producing righteousness. So Jesus didn't leave us alone, right? He said that he was going to give us someone or something to continue to lead us into all truth. This is John 14, 26. said, um, you know, when, when the Bible comes, the Bible is going to lead you into all truth and remind you of everything. Or when CNN comes or when Fox News comes, he's going to lead you into all truth. Now, what, what, is, what does that verse actually say? When the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, he's going to lead you into all truth and remind you of everything that I've said to you. And so, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ poured out after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in the upper room. The Holy Spirit is is God poured out into our hearts. It is the hope of glory. It is Christ inside us. Holy Spirit, He is the best. And He perfectly represents Jesus and leads us. So Jesus becomes our hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a big word. It just simply means how you, it's the science of interpretation. Jesus becomes the lens through which we interpret everything. Jesus becomes the lens through which we interpret history, Bible, present, and future. When Jesus is your hermeneutic, you can interpret all of those things with a smile on your face. If you guys think you have the word of God and you're in a bad mood, you don't have the word of God. Even when the nations are raging, he sits on high and laughs. Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy above all of his companions. So I want to get a little bit nerdy here for a second. Can you put that slide up? I want to talk about the Greek words for word. 
So Jesus, we know that he is the, the word of God from John chapter 1, and that word is logos. So these are a few different ways that word is translated from the Greek. So, so these are the Greek meanings for, for word. And so logos or logos is the logic or mind of God, and it's usually just reserved as a title for Jesus. And then rhema is all over the New Testament also. It's usually... Uh, used in speaking about the Holy Spirit. It's a spoken word from a living voice. Graphe is, uh, is a twist on the word word, and graphe means scripture or written word. And so leave that up there because this is going to make sense here in just, just a minute. So Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which which definition of word do you think it is? Is it logos, rhema, or graphe? The, the sword of the spirit being the word of God. Say it loud. Someone had it. Rhema. So the sword of the spirit is not graphe. The sword of the spirit is not scripture or written word. The sword of the spirit is the very intentions of God spoken from a living voice in a moment. So the problem with believing that the sword of the spirit is a book is if the sword of the spirit is a book, it can be a sword in the hand of any spirit. And you can make scripture say just about anything you want. You guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, great battles and wars and debates, and, and we've made the Bible say God is... Uh, he is misogynistic. We've made the Bible say God is uh, into feminism. We've made the Bible say God is genocidal. We've made the Bible say God is a pacifist. We've made the Bible say God endorses slavery. We've made the Bible say that there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ and all are equal and free in Him. We've made the Bible say just about anything. But you know who you can't make say anything? Jesus. Holy Spirit's a honey badger. <laughs> Holy Spirit's a bull in a china shop. Um, this is really important. Um, I, one of my favorite teachers, uh, he likes to say it like this. The word of God is infallible and inerrant, and he grew a beard when he turned 18. I want to reserve the title, Word of God for Jesus, don't you? The very Word of God, the very logic of God, the very mind of God, the very representation of Yahweh is Jesus, the incarnation. I believe that endless problems arise when graphe is elevated above lagas or enrema. And Jesus wasn't afraid to point this out either. Almost immediately, he picked a fight with Graffe worshipers, people who worshiped a book of God over a God of the book, a.k.a. the Pharisees. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and he, he actually says this in the, the famous Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Where did he get that? Where did Jesus get that? 
is Deuteronomy 19.21. Deuteronomy 19.21 says, show no pity. Take a life for a life, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus shows up and says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist an evil person. Bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pretty controversial right off the bat, Jesus. Not a good way to grow a mega church. I mean, he just, there's four times at the end of Matthew that he straightens out some of the words that we put in God's mouth. Another one, Matthew 5.45, Jesus said, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and he is quoting but correcting Deuteronomy 28, where it says, if you obey the Lord, he will send rain. If you disobey, no rain will fall. Matthew 5.37, Jesus says, don't take oaths. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Like, don't, don't take oaths. Not, don't swear on anything, not in heaven or earth. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, take oaths. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. He didn't kill the adulteress to show that we got it wrong. We got him wrong. We missed his heart. Jesus showed up in a time when deep darkness had covered the earth, meaning that we had nearly lost the heart of Yahweh, and he showed up to bring us back to the heart of Yahweh. And he did a really good job, and he's still doing it. He didn't let his disciples act like the prophet Elijah and kill people with fire because he's not into that kind of behavior at all. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives but to save them, that's Luke 9. When Jesus is saying things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, isn't that the same thing as him saying, you thought I was like this, but I'm actually like this? See, the Pharisees wanted Deuteronomy, but they got due to mercy. <laughs> he didn't look anything like the God they worshipped, and so they treated him how they thought their God would want him to be treated. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? <laughs> Yeah, I love you guys. I, I certainly am not trying to get you to doubt Scripture. That's the opposite. I love this book so much. This book reveals God. This, this book points us to the author. This book does not contain God because God doesn't have a beginning or an end, and this book has both. This book is beautiful because it reveals who he is, who we used to be, and who we are now. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't help us see that Jesus is above everything else, and I wouldn't be protecting the flock if I didn't point out the pitfall of the Pharisees. The people who knew the book better than anyone missed Jesus better than anyone. John pointed this out, John the Beloved. He was the last one to write a gospel. He was pretty old. He had been... At put on the Isle of Patmos after they tried to cook him like a French fry and it didn't work. And he had tons of time 
to pray, meditate, get caught up probably several times into beautiful encounters with God. And when he began writing, right in the first chapter of John, he says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. And then he says this, no one has ever seen God the only begotten who is at the Father's side has made him known. He said, no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. John, are you off your rocker? You just, you just referenced Moses, who obviously saw God, right? But John, I believe that he is saying, compared to the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus, showing us the Father in perfect clarity. No one has seen God. No one's seen anything like this. Paul said a really similar thing in, in 1 Timothy 6.15. He said, no one has seen God. That's crazy. Paul was like the most studied Hebrew of Hebrews. Like he studied under Gamaliel. It's like going to Oxford and being admitted into the, the hardest program. That was Paul. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant debater. He, was a brilliant, he had such an understanding of the Old Testament. So Paul knew from all of his understanding of the Old Testament, the stories of Adam Abraham, Moses, and several other instances of people seeing God. But Paul is saying, compared to Jesus in the flesh, they didn't see him. This is about the supremacy of Christ. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the past, in the past, at many different times, in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him he also created the world. He is the radiance of God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature or the exact representation, expression of his substance, upholding the universe by the power of his word, Rhema. I believe that we are on the front end of a reformation where we're going to understand the goodness of God all over again. Amen. I use the word uh, reformation because uh, he is reforming our understanding of him, and that will reform culture. That, to me, is repentance, is when our understanding of him is reformed, and so our behavior for him is completely reformed. See, when there's widespread information available about God, it causes reformation. Information leads to reformation. This happened when uh, a guy named Abram gets information from God. Abram hears from God, and it births a nation. Talk about reformation. And Moses hears from God, and it frees a nation. And then there's this, this period of time you know, where the, the kings rise and fall and, and high places are created and Israel's constantly wandering and along comes this king named Josiah. He's the youngest king in history. And what happens in Josiah's reign early on is they're digging through the, 
the closets and they find the book of the Lord and they read it and information about God is widespread again and it causes them to tear down the high places, return to the Lord, new music, feastings and fastings. Reformation happened when information came. And then the biggest information download of Yahweh is of course Jesus showing up on the scene and perfectly representing the Father to us. And that widespread information about God caused reformation of the entire world. He birthed the new humanity out of all nations. That's Ephesians 2.14. Many years go by. There's darkness and light and, and times of wandering in human history. And in the 1500s, the Gutenberg Press is created. And what's the first book they print? The Bible. And suddenly, information about God is readily available, and it reforms. Within one generation, we have the Protestant Reformation, and it is a direct result of the widespread information from that Gutenberg press, from the Bible being in everyone's hands. What age are we in right now? We're in the information age. Some of y'all heard me say this last week, but I just needed to say it again, and it didn't get recorded. So um, we have more access to information about God than ever before. Right now, you can click your computer a few times, and you can access the Old Testament, the New Testament, even intertestamental writings. You can reference the early church fathers. You can find out that Paul the, the Beloved's chief apostle was a guy named Polycarp, and Polycarp's chief apostle was a guy named Irenaeus, and you can read what Polycarp and Irenaeus said about John the Beloved. They can interpret John for you. The very people who walked with John can interpret John for you, and then you can read about the ecumenical councils all throughout history where the church came together to defend God's nature against heresies and why it was important to defend. And it's just a few clicks and you don't have to go to seminary. You're just sitting there being filled with the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the earth. And so now we are on the front end of a reformation where people are realizing he's better than we thought. He's better than we taught. He's better than that blurry glimpse we caught. He is good. And it's causing a civil war in the church over the goodness of God. And you guys have to forgive me for this. I think it's kind of funny. You might not, but I call it the love but war. And it goes like this. Yes, God is love, but. And people are saying the truth, the very essence of God. It's not that God is loving. It's that God is love. They're saying that he does Everything. He creates out of love. He judges out of love. And on the other side, you have, or, or you might say, God is so kind. And you'll hear someone say, he's kind, but he's severe. And I know, I know what verse they're referencing, but guys, the kindness and severity of God are the same thing. It's that he won't stop you from reaping what you sow. That is both the kindness and severity of God. It's called freedom. He so loves freedom and so believes in us that he'll let us pick our poison or pick what prospers us. 
Did you hear that? He believes in you. That's why he gives you such freedom. Guys, we've used the Bible to murder evil people when the hero of the book died for evil people. Here's, here's what I think. I don't think that someone who hasn't been transformed by kindness should ever weaponize scripture because we'll make flesh and blood our enemy. We bind up people with heavy burdens and then hack them to pieces when they can't carry them. One side of the church believes that sin is a behavior to be punished and the other believes that sin is a terminal disease to be cured by the great physician. And it is what we're in right now. And we need to decide what side we're going to be on. And we need to determine in our hearts that in a civil war, we're going to be like Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln had one of the hardest tasks of any military leader in history. He had to defeat an enemy without villainizing them. Every other commander of armies would speak of the enemy as if they were less than human, a, a scourge of the earth that needed to be removed. Just kill them because they're animals. But Abraham Lincoln knew that what he was trying to kill was an ideology, an evil inside, but the brothers who carried it were still his brothers and he would need to unify the nation again after he defeated the South. When I realized that, I was in the prayer room and I heard the Lord say, I'm looking for my Abraham Lincolns. And he downloaded that, that idea to me that in the church, there is a civil war over the goodness of God. It's freedom versus religion, essentially. And he said he's looking for his Abraham Lincolns who would deliver his church from religion without villainizing the brothers who carry that spirit. And I left the, the prayer room, and my phone rings. And it's a number I don't recognize. Usually I would screen such a thing, but I just felt like answering it. I said, hello, and the voice said, is Abe there? <laughs> and I was like, as in Abraham? And he said, yeah, is this Abraham? Sadly, I said no, because I wish I would have said yes, because I think it was an angel and I would have loved to keep talking. <laughs> But I was just it's so like taken back because God just said to me, I'm looking for my Abrahams. This phone call comes in and it's a guy looking for Abraham. And God is looking for people who would stand up for his goodness without villainizing the people who don't believe he's that good. Amen? Amen. Can we pray together? Father, thank you so much that you sent your son to lead us back to you. We are again just amazed by 2 Corinthians 5, that um, God the Father, you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself, not counting our trespasses against us. Thank you that your mercy endures forever. Your goodness stretches to the skies.
Thank you, Father, that there's no way to exaggerate your goodness, embellish your mercy, or overstate your kindness. We ask that we be transformed by a fresh revelation of just how good you are and that you would cause all of our thought processes to line up with the truth of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys.